You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. How to Be an Earthly Idealist by Don Watkins. When I tell objectivists that I discovered Ayn Rand at the age of 15, they often tell me how lucky I was. And I was fortunate. But I think that they imagine that in discovering Ayn Rand so early, I was saved from the difficulties they encountered in trying to assimilate her philosophy later in life. As if in reading about Rourke at the age of 15, I was able to effortlessly become like Rourke. But that wasn't my experience. Throughout my time in objectivism, I struggled uh, with everything from finding the relationships that I wanted, to finding the work that I wanted, to self-doubt. Importantly, I also experienced my moral ideals as a straitjacket as a source of frustration and guilt rather than an inspiring guide to joy. After a quarter century in the objectivist movement, I've come to the conclusion that I'm not alone. But that raises a question. Why aren't more objectivists more happy? This is a talk about idealism, about seeking the best, the perfect, Ideals are what fuel us. They give us a target at which to aim and the motive power for that long-range action necessary to reach them. We need ideals, above all, a moral ideal that we can achieve, that we want to achieve, and that in achieving gives us success, happiness, self-esteem. This is earthly idealism. It's the idealism that we see in Ayn Rand's heroes, in John Galt, Dagny Taggart, Howard Rourke. But most objectivists aren't Rourke's. Now, in one sense, this shouldn't be surprising. Objectivism gives us an achievable ideal, but it's a demanding ideal. But in another sense, it really should be surprising. After all, everybody in this room wants to be like Rourke. And if you want to be like Rourke, if it's possible to be like Rourke, Why do we so often fall short? To get at the answer, let's start with a quote. This is my favorite Ayn Rand quote. This is from Galt's speech, her analysis of pride. To live requires a sense of self-value, but man who has no automatic values has no automatic sense of self-esteem and must earn it by shaping his soul in the image of his moral ideal. In the image of man, the rational being he is born able to create but must create by choice. That the first precondition of self-esteem is that radiant selfishness of soul, which desires the best in all things, in values of matter and spirit. A soul that seeks above all else to achieve its own moral perfection, valuing nothing higher than itself. If you've achieved that, you've achieved the promise of earthly idealism. But in my experience, objectivists struggle with two issues. How to desire the best in all things and how to grapple with the challenge of moral perfection. Let's call them the problem of value and the problem of virtue. The problem of value. The idealist has profound, sacred values. Above all, profound personal values. To be an idealist 
is to want the best for my life, my work, my relationships, my favorite art. But in my experience, objectivists often struggle in the realm of forming strong personal values, of finding a career that they're passionate about, a romantic partner who means the world to them, or even take the smaller scale values that just pervade our day-to-day lives. Where we live, how we dress, what we eat, we make choices in all these areas, but so rarely do they have that soulful, all-in quality that we see in Ayn Rand's heroes. Now, if I had to name one reason for this, I'd say it's because the default is for philosophy to function in our mind like a religion. Even if you weren't raised religiously, this is the great temptation because we don't have many models of what it means to uh, follow by a philosophy. The default is for your philosophy to be a dogma that issues you orders and tells you what to do rather than knowledge that illuminates the world and helps you navigate your way through it. Here's how Ayn Rand put it in The Art of Nonfiction. The purpose of philosophy is to guide a man in the course of his life. Unfortunately, many objectivists have not fully accepted, concretized, and integrated this principle. For example, in the presence of a given event, work of art, person, etc., too many objectivists ask themselves, what do I have to feel instead of what do I feel? And if they need to judge a situation, which I have not discussed before their approaches, what should I think rather than what do I think? Your philosophy exists to serve you, but to serve you, it can't be a dogma. It has to be knowledge. You have to derive your philosophy from concrete so that you can apply it to concretes, to the concretes of your choices, your actions. Now, this, in essence, is what Leonard Peikoff taught us to do in courses like Understanding Objectivism and Objectivism Through Induction. But I found that even objectivists who've gone through Leonard's courses often struggle in the realm of forming personal values. We ask ourselves, what should I want, rather than what do I want? For example, let's take career. I was working with a young man, really smart, really conscientious, who was thinking about, what do I want to do with my life? And he came to me one day and he was really excited and said, Don, I want to do work that's important. And Ayn Rand says that the most important thing in the world is to be an intellectual. So I think I'm going to be an intellectual. And I looked at him and I said, Rourke wasn't an intellectual. He just built buildings. Was his work unimportant? You see the point, right? Building was the most important thing in the world to him. Buildings made the world beautiful and making the world beautiful was Rourke's personal mission. Now, I'm sure Rourke would grant that from the perspective of humanity's flourishing, intellectuals make a bigger contribution than do architects. And then he'd be like, whatever, and go back to building. The student was looking for philosophy to tell him what was personally valuable. But philosophy doesn't tell you that. It's as if, just as philosophy tells you to value reason and purpose and self-esteem, he wanted philosophy to tell him what work to do. But philosophy doesn't tell you that. 
Personal values are personal and you have to form them. The crucial question is how. Now, I cannot give you a step-by-step formula for forming personal values. Forming values is a creative process. It's the process of self-creation. And just as there can't be a formula for writing a novel or composing a symphony, there can't be a formula for designing your life, for creating your life. But I do want to talk about one aspect of the value formation process that is not obvious, and that is formulating first-handed standards. I want to read you, this is um, from the great economist Ludwig von Mises. And the first time I read this quote, I was like, oh, that's non-controversial. That makes sense. He says, now we must realize that valuing means to prefer A to B. Okay. Then I read Ayn Rand's comments that she scribbled in the margins of her copy of Mises' book. I can't convey to you how emphatic this is. No, it doesn't. Choice means this. Value and choice are not the same concepts. Valuing means measurement by means of a standard. Value cannot exist where there is no choice, but it's not the fact of choice that determines a value. It is the standard of value. Example, the value of a girl to a lover is not that he prefers her to other girls. He had to have a standard that made him prefer her. He could have chosen none if none filled a standard. Now, this came to me as a revelation, but it really shouldn't have. This idea that valuing involves setting standards and evaluating things by standards, this is all over Ayn Rand's work. From our moral values being determined by the basic moral standard of man's life, but it's much, it's much wider than that. Think of Rourke's building philosophy. It's to come up with a central idea, a standard, an ideal that then sets every detail. Another way to put this is to form personal values means forming personal ideals. Now, philosophy gives us our fundamental standards of proof, of value, of political organization. But those fundamental standards don't have enough resolution to provide us with all the concrete guidance we need or the guidance we need to make the concrete choices that are going to add up to our unique life. In the case of personal values, part of forming them are unique standards for what you want out of life. Let's take career again. Philosophy tells you that you have to have a career, that you should build your life around using your mind to create material values. It tells you that you have to choose work that involves using your mind to its full capacity. Now, this rules out being a thief or a bum or a regulator. But beyond that, Galt says, your work is yours to choose. To choose it, you have to formulate your own standards for what you want, standards that are consonant with reality, but aren't dictated by reality, standards that are uniquely and profoundly yours, what kind of work you want to do and what way of working you want to engage in. 
Now, we could do a whole lecture on forming personal values and personal standards, but I want to talk about three aspects very quickly, and we can call them live, reflect, project. So live. One of the reasons that I think people, especially young people, struggle so much in forming personal standards and look to philosophy to give them to, to them is because they just don't have enough life experience in a given realm. They try to define their ideal work before they've worked. They try to define their ideal romantic partner before they've dated. You need to, if your personal standards are genuinely gonna be personal, you have to go out there and taste life. That's gonna give you the raw material from which to form your own standards. But it's not just you collecting a whole bunch of experiences. And that leads us to reflect. You've got to draw lessons from those experiences. And what that means is continually asking yourself as you go through life, what do I like and why? What do I not like and why? It's from asking yourself that question over and over again that you're going to spot patterns in what you care about and the reasons that you care about them that are going to add up to your unique personal standards. But valuing is not primarily backward looking, and that leads to project. It's about projecting different futures you might create and then selecting the one that you want to make real. I found that often when objectivists struggle with making decisions, when they're paralyzed by indecision, they often have this sense that there's one right life for them to create, and that if they make the wrong decision, they've let reality down, they're done for, their happiness is over. But your life is yours to choose. You get to create it, and there is no authority whether from reality or philosophy, that's going to determine what kind of life you can and should create. Let's summarize where we are. To be an earthly idealist, we need philosophy. We need philosophy to guide us in terms of what values could we pursue, should we pursue, what values fit together into a truly human life, a self-sustaining way of life that can lead to happiness. But philosophy can't give, a, give us all the specific values that are gonna constitute and make up our life, our own unique happiness. That requires new creative thinking. And the ultimate metric is what kind of life do I want to create? If we don't do that, if we try to look to philosophy to dictate our standards, then we won't be able to achieve our values and to the extent that we do achieve them, they won't fulfill us. So that's my advice. Never forget that rational egoism is about what you want. Never let that slip from the forefront of your mind. Never act from an ounce of duty. Never act because you think your philosophy is telling you to. Act because there's something you want, 
something you desire, craving, cannot live without. And then act with relentless dedication so that you can enjoy the best in all things. Let's turn to the problem of virtue. An idealist is on a quest for moral perfection in order to achieve and enjoy the best in all things. The problem of virtue is the problem of how to grapple with the challenge of moral perfection. Now, in one sense, there is no special problem of moral perfection. Morality, according to objectivism, deals only with that which is open to your direct volitional choice. In essence, what it says is guide your life by your knowledge. What's more, the good is good for you. And so there's no reason why you should act against your knowledge. And yet, I have often found it hard to act in alignment with my morality. I wish I could tell you that from the time I discovered Ayn Rand, I never lied, never evaded, never treated anyone unfairly, never gave in to social pressure. But it's not true. Why not? And I think it comes down to this. Morality is hard to practice when we think it's calling upon us to give up something desirable or to do something undesirable. And it is really easy to think that morality is demanding you to give up something desirable and to do something undesirable. Let me tell you a story. A while back, I was talking to a non-objectivist friend of mine, and she confided that she knew she needed to stop drinking, but she was finding it really hard. And I recommended her a book by a guy named Alan Carr called The Easy Way to Stop Drinking. And a few weeks later, she calls me up and she said she read the book. She had stopped and indeed, what do you know, found it easy. Now, what's Carr's secret? Carr thinks that the reason people struggle to give up habits like drinking or smoking is because they think that there's these benefits they get from them, relaxation, fun, pleasure. They might be convinced that the negatives outweigh the positives, but so long as they think there are these real positives, it's really hard. And so what Carr does is he goes through all of these alleged positives and says, no, they're illusory. There are no benefits here. And so giving up these habits isn't even a partial sacrifice. Now, set aside Carr's analysis of drinking or smoking. There's all kinds of objections you could raise to that. That's not my point. My point is this. There's a real lesson for, here, for us here when it comes to morality. We struggle to act in alignment with our morality when we think that we're having to give up on values, when we fall into what Leonard Peikoff calls the trade-off view in ethics. It's the view that says, that affair would be really good. That loot would be really good. Staying safe and silent while my values are being attacked would be really good. But alas, my morality tells me there's negatives that outweigh the positives, and so I can't do it. What objectivism actually teaches is not that dishonesty or moral cowardice involve more negatives than positives. 
What it teaches us is that there's no values to be gained by sacrificing rational principles, that the unreal is unreal and can have no value. The challenge of moral perfection is really to make this fact fully real to ourselves in the moment that we're acting, not to grit our teeth and say, I want it, but morality forbids it, but to see, to really see that there's nothing here worth wanting. Or since morality is not mainly about saying no to things, it's about keeping our eyes focused on what's genuinely valuable and the moral principles required to realize it. Now, what does this mean in practice? Well, the first thing that it means is that you have to be convinced that your moral principles are truly good for you, that rationality, independence, productiveness, pride, justice, that these are genuinely in your interests. You can't take Ayn Rand's word for it. And the second thing it means is that in cases where you are faced with temptation, it's asking yourself two questions. Why do I think there's a value here? And why do I think morality tells me not to pursue it? What you'll find if you ask these questions is that either there is no value here or, and this is really common, morality does not actually tell you not to pursue it. This is what Leonard Peikoff means when he writes in Opar. The challenge of a man's life is not to struggle against immoral passions, but to see the facts of reality clearly in full focus. Once a man has done this in a given situation, there is no further difficulty in regard to him acting on what he sees. But this still leaves one question unanswered. Careful. What do we do when we have taken an action unworthy of us? What do we do when we have violated our moral code? How do we deal with the problem of earned guilt? Here's what not to do. I remember I was in high school and I came in home late one night and lied to my parents. I don't even remember the details so that I didn't get in trouble. And you can ask me in the Q&A period how I morally assess this issue now, but I went up to my room and I remember thinking, oh my God, objectivism says not simply like be honest, but be honest all the time. To be a liar, Leonard Peikoff says in Opar, is not to lie with every sentence. It's a few big whoppers is enough. So I'm not perfect, which means I'm completely immoral. I think a lot of objectivists hold this kind of view in some form. But let me tell you, it is wrong and it is poisonous. If you hold this view or anything like it, your idealism will die a slow, painful death. What this actually represents is a religious approach to morality. Now, religion obviously doesn't say be perfect. It says perfection is impossible. But what religion does say is that when you sin, it's a stain on your purity. And the only way to restore your purity is through some mystical process of atonement. And there's just one problem if you bring that orientation into objectivism. There is no God to atone to. But what's the error? 
Well, let me read, this is Ayn Rand from her account of pride, not from Atlas Shrugged this time, but from the objectivist ethics. She says, pride means that one must earn the right to hold oneself as one's own highest value by achieving one's own moral perfection, which one achieves by never accepting any code of irrational virtues impossible to practice and by never failing to practice the virtues one knows to be rational by never accepting an unearned guilt and never earning any, or, if one has earned it, never leaving it uncorrected, by never resigning oneself passively to any flaws in one's character. What objectivism rejects as fully evil is resigning yourself to moral flaws. To reject a virtue is not to fail to practice it on a given occasion. It's to view occasionally practicing virtue as sufficient. It's to say, look, nobody's perfect. So yeah, I'm lying to my boss about working when really I'm watching Dom Watkins on YouTube. Yeah, I'm lying to my fitness instructor about following my diet when I'm really eating Pop-Tarts in my room. But Look, everybody lies. You can't be perfect all the time. It's that, exempting your choices from morality that objectivism regards as evil. But in my experience, that's not how most objectivists go wrong. Indeed, the whole reason we struggle with moral issues is because we don't exempt any of our choices from reason and morality. So how then do we correct flaws in our moral character? Now, it's important to remember that guilt, like all emotions, has survival value. It's really a signal to learn and to grow. The purpose of guilt is not to beat yourself up for infinity. It's not to say, oh, what a wretch am I. It's to alert you to the need that you need to do better. You need to grow. You need to course correct. Morality gives us a self-sustaining, life-promoting course. And to do something that's not in alignment with your morality is to go off course. And that guilt, that's trying to say, hey, get back on course. Here's what's interesting. Notice this. It's not just moral breaches that require course correction. Errors of knowledge do too. Think of Hank Reardon. Hank Reardon is presented throughout Atlas Shrugged as fully moral. But when we meet him, he's making all kinds of choices that are detrimental to his life. And what we see him undergo throughout the novel is a process of course correction. So what's the difference between course correction in that sense and course correcting after a moral breach? And it really comes down to this, self-trust. Reardon was doing his best to guide himself through life. He had a map and he was following it. it. Just turned out the map was completely garbage. What makes a moral breach so daunting is that we had the right map and we threw it away when the chips were down. And the question that we face then is, 
how do I know I'm not going to do that again in the future? And the answer is you have to rebuild self-trust. You have to have confidence that you won't do that again in the future. Here's four steps that I have found helpful in rebuilding self-trust after a moral breach. Call them the four P's of pride. A probe, a promise, a plan, a pattern. A probe. You gotta start just by facing up to an understanding your choice. What happened? Why did it happen? Was it just a one-time thing in the face of a strong emotion? Is it part of a larger character flaw? How did I evade? Was it through context dropping, rationalization, lying? What were the consequences, short-term, long-term, existential, psychological? The better you understand what went wrong, the better position you'll be in to learn and to grow. A promise. I think what's often going on when we don't live up to our moral standards is that we're deciding in that moment to place something else above our own happiness. We're deciding that I'd rather be unhappy than face this fear, than deal with this issue. A promise is a commitment to yourself that no, no more. I'm drawing a line in the sand and nothing is gonna stand between me and the most happiness I can create for myself. A plan is how we translate that promise into a true commitment. So for instance, if I'm not proud of the way I conduct myself on social media, a plan might be get off social media or institute a waiting period between when I write something and when I hit send or a public announcement that says, I'm not gonna engage in this kind of behavior anymore. What we're really trying to do is reduce the friction involved in the behaviors we want to repeat and increase the friction involved in the behaviors we don't want to repeat. A pattern. You can't simply think your way to a better moral character. It requires action over time. It requires building a new reputation with yourself that you won't throw away your map when you need it. And if you do that, if you do the hard work of facing your errors, facing your mistakes and repairing them, then you have the right to see yourself as morally perfect and let go of the guilt. One last word on this. I find it helpful to think about perfection in terms of an active word, perfecting. I don't think you should go to bed every night going, am I still perfect or I screw that one up again? The question to ask yourself is, am I continually working on improving my moral character or am I settling? And that's my advice. Wherever you are, whatever the state of your character, don't settle. Don't settle for less than the best. Right now, some of you are probably sitting here pitting your stomach and thinking about some change you need to make, some issue you need to resolve, some area of life where you need to improve. And my advice is do it. Face it. Deal with it now as soon as possible. 
It's hard, it's difficult, it's scary. But what I can promise you, on the other side of that mountain is a life better than you thought possible. Let's wrap up. To become an earthly idealist is about moving from religion to philosophy. Or to put it another way, it's about moving from duty to causality. In her article, Causality Versus Duty, Ayn Rand contrasts Kant's duty-centered ethics with what she calls an ethics of final causation. A duty, she says, is the moral necessity to perform certain actions for no reason other than obedience to some higher authority without regard to any personal goal, motive, desire, or interest. It's to do something because God or Galt says so. By contrast, objectivism holds that causality, not duty, has to be the guiding principle of your actions. Quote, Reality confronts a man with a great many musts, but all of them are conditional. The formula of realistic necessity is you must if, and the if stands for man's choice, if you want to achieve a certain goal. You must eat if you want to survive. You must work if you want to eat. You must think if you want to work. You must look at reality if you want to think, if you want to know what to do, if you want to know what goals to choose, if you want to know how to achieve them. So to put it in the most fundamental terms, the solution to both the problem of value and the problem of virtue is to reject duty in favor of causality. It's to stop seeing your philosophy as something that you have to serve and obey and see it as causal knowledge that helps you decide what's worth wanting and how to get it. It's to see morality not as a scarecrow chasing away your pleasures, but as a map showing you the road to every pleasure that makes life worth living. The great evil of religion is that it teaches us that our ideals are at odds with life and happiness at earth, on earth. That idealism requires and consists of the courage to sacrifice yourself for a cause greater than yourself that courage consists in throwing your life away. What Ayn Rand showed us is that idealism does require courage. Not the courage to sacrifice what you want, but the courage to go after what you want, price no object. Let me end with a story. Leonard Peikoff has shared one of his favorite memories of Ayn Rand. It's 1957, they're walking through the streets of New York. They're on the way to Random House, which is just about to publish Atlas Shrugged. And as they're walking through the streets, Ayn Rand turns to him and says, don't ever give up on what you want in life. The struggle is worth it. Now, it took me a long time to realize why that moment was so meaningful to Leonard. But let me take you back to early 2020. I have a great career doing intellectual work and objectivism. I'm about two weeks away from closing on my first house and COVID hits. 
and I find out I'm going to lose my job. I remember walking through my neighborhood and considering the real possibility that I wasn't going to be able to make a living as an objectivist intellectual, at least for a while. I mean, who's hiring expensive objectivist intellectuals in the middle of a pandemic? I'm going to have to get an office job if I can get one and, you know, do my writing on the side. It was one of the most terrifying times in my life. And then I got a call. It was a job offer, a great offer doing intellectual work. But there was just one problem. It wasn't what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was act in this idea I'd been kicking around for some time about going out on my own and trying to create a business around coaching people on their communication challenges in their careers. But here was this safe, sure thing. And yet I heard myself saying no and turning it down. Now the story has a happy ending. I was able to create this business and it led me ultimately to my dream job, returning to ARI to help create and grow Ayn Rand University and its coaching program. But the question is, why did I say no? And what gave me the courage to say no? It was that I was not willing to settle for less than the best. And so let me say to you, don't give up on what you want from life. Decide what it is that you want and never settle. It is worth it. Thank you. All right, Tom. kick us off. Uh, my question is about your kind of your first point and your last point about for a young person when you talked about collecting experiences and the last point about not settling for less than the best, right? How would you kind of, you know, argue between the two, basically? Like, how would you collect experiences when a lot of them won't meet your standard, maybe? Or you'll just waste your time. Oh, okay, I got you. The fact is you don't know which ones are going to be the best, right? That's part of what you're doing in life to discover your values. You have to experiment and experimentation involves disappointment. And sometimes it involves regret. Like you're, you're going to go out there, you're going to try that. I mean, take dating, right? Like what if you said, I'm never going to settle. So I'm not going to date until I find the perfect person. Good luck with that. <laughs> so part of what we're doing when experimenting is it's, it's the same way, it's in the realm of knowledge, it's being curious. Not everything that I investigate will turn out to be true or turn out to be relevant to my life, but, it's, but curiosity itself is a value. Experimenting itself in the search of new values is a value. The point is that when you're making a decision, when you're deciding, what am I going all in on? What am I devoting my life to and committing myself to? Then I'm not settling. Then I'm not going to go, yeah, maybe I should play it safe. Maybe, 
Maybe this is, you know, too hard or too challenging. Go for the best. Go for the thing that's the most meaningful to you. But you're only going to get there through ongoing experimentation in life. Yes. Thanks for the talk. You planted a question about how you would now assess the occasion when you lied coming back home to your parents in high school. And it sounded like there was more to say about that. There's more to say. I'll, I'll just be really brief and probably leave it a little unsatisfying. Um, so objectivism, as you know, holds that honesty is a moral principle, and that means not seeking to gain values through fraud. And there's certainly cases, um, center of the page cases, in which outright lying is not viewed by objectivism as a breach of honesty. And, you know, so take the standard example, somebody comes knocking on your door saying, hey, do you have any Jews in your house? And you're like, nope. Like, that's it's a form of self-defense, right? Like just as I could shoot that person morally, I have the right to lie to them. And objectivists have often talked about protecting privacy from people who are snooping um, is not a violation of the principle of honesty, at least not in every case. And there's a real issue of um, when you're living with your parents, you're not yet free to be independent, but you're mature enough that in effect, um, you need to be living your own life. You don't have an obligation to tell your parents everything that you're doing. So it's much more about what are the demands of honesty in a relationship where you're forced to live with your parents and under their roof, but you're trying to build and create your own life. And what I will say is it's, not, it's at least not obvious that lying to protect your privacy in that kind of situation is wrong, but we'd have to work through different examples and so on. So I'm not going to give like the definitive formulation just to put it that I, I don't think it's obvious that what I did was immoral looking back. But the point was, I thought it was, and it led to that kind of wrong way of thinking about, you know, the moral choice. So, Don, excellent, uh, inspiring talk. And I just want to get an update on your book, the publication of your book. Well, let me tell you this. You will get a very, very specific update at Tal's talk this afternoon. So wait a few hours. Thank you. Uh, one common mistake I've noticed amongst uh, objectivists, but also intellectuals, uh, people, not intellectuals, but people who are interested in intellectualists in general, is a sort of pervasive disconnect between the way they think and operate when they're doing their intellectual work and then the, how that relates to the rest of their life and, and their thinking. And it seems, would, do you see that as a special case that maybe requires special guidance or is it a different case than the treating my morality as a duty um, that, and not treating it as real knowledge? Like how, how would you relate those and how would you, what guidance would you give to the, the sort of... Well, I think sometimes it's the same issue. It's that you haven't really owned the philosophy in the sense of it's not really knowledge. It's kind of this game that you play. Sometimes uh, I think that um, there is more going on. I think that it, there can be compartmentalization. I think there can be a lot of things, but definitely it's something that happens with intellectuals. But the, what you're describing, it's wider than intellectuals. I, the, the form that it shows up for non-intellectuals and objectivism is sort of like objectivism. I think Alex Epstein has called it like it's a club 
So we get together with our objectivist friends and we make insider jokes and we have like, you know, these stickers and so on. But if you actually like step back and go, is there anything about these people that's essentially different from everybody else I see in the culture? You go, not really. And it's the same with intellectuals, right? The only thing that would be distinctive of that kind of objectivist intellectual is the particular content of the ideas that he's saying, but his life looks exactly like the life of, you know, his university colleagues or something like that. And so the fact is, if you're living objectivism, it's going to look very different and it should look very different than the rest of the culture. Um, so I think sometimes it's the same, sometimes it's different, but that's definitely something I want to warn people against. Like, um, it's, it's not a sin to laugh with your friends over insider objectivist jokes, but if that's all objectivism is to you, or if all objectivism is to you, is, you know, um, the particular arguments that you put in your term paper, that's a real problem. You're not really taking the philosophy seriously, no matter how much time you devote to learning the ins and outs of concept formation. Do you, quick follow up. Do you have any like what what guidance would you give at a, at that abstract level to that particular how to address that particular problem? In so many of these cases, it depends on the person, yeah. and it depends why that's not happening. So, I mean, the only general guidance I would give is: look, if you're just going to play games with ideas, like you'll get way further ahead if you pick more popular <laughs> ideas. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you for your talk. And early on, you mentioned that when you're writing a symphony, for example, it cannot be formulaic. And I was curious because many of the groundbreaking composers over the centuries have had a very firm foundation in music theory. They trained, um, many of the 20th century composers had trained with Nadia Boulanger, who had them reading medieval part books instead of, uh -huh. um, so they, they had this firm foundation. So I was curious as somebody who is um, relatively new or embarking on their journey of um, philosophy and objectivism, what that looks like within that context, what would be that training? I'm so happy you asked that question because you know, I had to cut so much material. What I said was that valuing is a creative process, so there's no step-by-step -step formula, but there are principles for forming values, just as there are principles. I wrote a novel I got lots of principles and tactical guidance from people that helped me. Like a novel has to have a certain kind of structure. There's a lot of freedom in that structure. And I think part of what you saw in the history of music, for instance, is that um, as we you know, saw progress, let's call it from the classical era to the romantic era, is realizing, okay, what is formula and what, is what are principles? And so that by the time you get to Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff, there's still a lot of principles navigating what they're doing and how they're constructing a symphony, let's say. Um, but it's no, it, there's not an ounce of it being formulaic. And I think that's the transition is that we need principled guidance. But at the end of the day, principled guidance still requires you to exercise your independent creativity, your independent judgment. Um, how many of you were at Tara's talk yesterday? A lot of the questions I think she got were from people, and understandably, um, who were saying, okay, like, they were hopeful that they were struggling with something in life, and they were hopeful there was, like, one rule that would solve it, one answer. And, and Tara kept coming back to, like, 
at the end of the day, the advice is be objective because what be objective means is keep thinking about it. And what you'll, what you'll gain over time is it will build your judgment, but, but there's no external advice that's gonna replace your judgment. And that's true of forming values. It's true of artistic creation is at the end of the day, you have free will and the creative process requires you to put yourself into it. So I think that's the essential thing that's going on there, but I'm glad you asked that. Thank you. Hey, um, I, found, I found the title of your talk very intriguing, being an earthly idealist. I, I consider myself an idealist, but I'm certainly not an earthly idealist in that I, I, I would love to promote Ayn Rand's ideas more, but I'm simply disgusted by the culture that we live in. You know, I haven't turned on the TV in the past 20 years, haven't you know, seen a newspaper in the past 20 years or so because I'm simply, and, and the woke madness and all of that, simply I, I, I keep thinking, you know, the, the, the culture has gone insane and, and it drives me nuts. You know, I wish I, I could live more. I, 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 and you mentioned it, you know, the, the, the feeling of, oh, I think I should live more on this earth to, to, to go after my values, but I'm simply disgusted by, by the culture. And I, I wonder, um, is, is that a problem that, that you've encountered before with, with other objectivists? And, and basically, what can I do is my, my question. <laughs> I've encountered it in me. Uh, okay. I get it. I'm very sympathetic to that. Uh, okay. For me, it's only a passing mood ever. <laughs> and what draws me back, frankly, is... I'm not going to let those bastards claim this earth. Not going to happen. That's it. Um, we have a question from uh, Marcos. So he's uh, asking, what do you think about evaluating the moral value of a decision, consequences of which in your life you cannot fully know? Like having a child oh well the example is the question like so <laughs> for most decisions the basic idea is like the, um, this is a point that Leonard Peikoff stresses in OPAR is yeah we can't project all the decision or all the consequences of our actions that's why we need moral principles or more broadly not just moral principles we need principles in order to project long-range consequences But in many spheres, in, in, ter in terms of specifics, yeah, we don't know, we don't have all of the information we'd want to make a decision. With kids, Leonard Peikoff has called this the only ineffable decision. And as somebody with two kids, I, like, I totally agree. It's a thing where you have no idea w whether this is like you, the right decision for your life, how it's going to impact your life there's really no way to convey it to somebody else until they've done it. And yet it's an irrevocable decision. Like once you've done it, there's no going back. So like I, I, like, I think here's one way to overstate the point. All of human knowledge has to be integrated except for the decision to have kids, which is just, <laughs> you do what you can. Andrew. Thank you, Don. Um, you earlier talked about but you really just sketched the distinction between a value and a standard of value. 
Could you elaborate on that in this context? Yeah, I mean, well, I could say uh, a little bit about it. Um, think about, I, I gave the example of works building. Like the building is the value, right? The standard is the central idea that's kind of behind the building. So take a novel, for instance. Um, Atlas Shrugged is a novel Ayn Rand created. The standard that she used to create it was the plot theme, the mind on strike, which actually was a way of executing on a wider standard of um, the role of the mind in human life. And so the standard is an abstraction. It's an abstract guide to creation or, um, well, I'll say creation in a certain realm, but there is one caveat because you, you also have abstract standards in realms that are more about discovery. So for instance, um, Charles Darwin, when he's, he, he formulates a theory of natural selection, which is in effect his standard. Can I integrate everything around this idea of that species evolved through natural selection? And so there, instead of using that standard to select all the facts, he's using that standard as a means of kind of like, does this integrate all the facts? But in general, it's just an abstraction that guides you in a process of creation and integration in a, in, in a particular realm. And I think you're saying that in the I think you're saying that in the course of developing our life and figuring out what kind of a life we want to have, I think you're recommending that we not only learn and experiment and figure out what our particular values are, but also formulate statements to ourselves of what is our standard of why do we like these and what is our broader standards. Yeah, yeah. So it's... Um, Ayn Rand has this point, I forget where she makes it, where she says in passing, like, a subjectivist can have kind of like consistent values at a really high price versus I think she's contrasting it with a pragmatist who has like no consistent values. But they're in effect, they're standardless values. It's just emotional. Like, I really like this. I care about it. It's mine. I protect it. To have objective values, values reached and held by reason that you can unify your life around in a really consistent way, you have to have a why behind it. And the why can, and, and this is going to pervade life. And part of what's interesting about life and part of what we're doing at Ocom when we're talking about our values is often, oh, you like that show? Why? What's your standard? How, like, how, how are you judging it? And so it's really the kind of cognitive side of valuing uh, or a big part of the cognitive side of valuing is getting to that why. And the why is just the, the standard. Thank you. Yeah. Hey, uh, you were talking about guilt in terms of course correction, right? I've failed my moral standard, and one of the things about objectivism has gotten me to raise my moral standards higher and higher and higher. So I continually fail at the next level of achieving my moral standard because I keep refining it and finding better ways of doing it. So guilt is course correction. When I, when I fail to achieve one of my values or when I violate one of my values, I tend to feel kind of two things. One, I have failed my values, and second, there's something wrong with me. <laughs> and that 
distinction between I've learned something that my my methodology, my capacities are not up to my moral standards, and so I'm going to learn and course correct versus there's something wrong with me. And I was just curious what you had to say about that. I mean, we have to talk more, but when I hear you say that, I think there's a big problem built into how you're thinking about it. Like if you describe setting your moral standards higher and higher and higher in the sense that they're always out of reach, like that something's going really wrong in how you're thinking about it because the moral, ha- it only is the directly chosen. That is, it, if you're setting a standard that you a moral standard that you can't reach, like that's incoherent. Like there, there's something, but we can certainly set goals and aspirations that are slightly out of reach. And if those two things get blended, then yeah. So for instance, like I'm always trying to write a better book than the one that I wrote before. And I, the, and so like, I look back at my past books, like, oh, they didn't live up to this new higher standard I've set for myself. But that's very different than a moral standard that I haven't lived up to, which is, did I write the best book that I was capable of or did I kind of slack off and, you know, half-assed it? Like that would then be a moral issue versus the increasingly high, um, non-moral, but still important standards that I set for myself as somebody ambitiously pursuing the best in life. But we'd have to talk about it more because maybe that's not quite capturing how you're thinking about it. Thank you. Yeah. All right, we got time for one more. Salutations, sir. I wanted to ask that when setting an extremely long-term goal, such as over the course of 40 to 50 years, how does one know if they're overambitious or way over their head? Would you like an example? Um, if it's fast. Yes. If someone was to say, want to automate every single blue-collar job while simultaneously offering an education system that almost any blue-collar worker who is honest with themselves could level up their career to a white-collar job, would that be a overtly ambitious or untenable career? How could one introspect to understand if it's within their capabilities? Um, I don't necessarily know that you can introspect, certainly not at the beginning. So people set major ambitious goals that sound crazy. I mean, Bill Gates deliberately set out a computer on every desktop at a time when people are like, a what? Human beings can achieve amazing things, but I think part of what happens to us, and I think this is very normal and healthy, is that when you start out in life, if you're at all ambitious, you set these big goals and you don't know for sure if you can achieve them. And what you do is it's in effect a process of experiment to discovery to decide, okay, what is like the cap of my ability? And you shouldn't assume that it's, you shouldn't cap yourself prematurely. Go out there and try. I got interested in objectivism and I wanted to be the next Leonard Peikoff coming up with new theories of fundamental philosophy and reach a certain point where I was like, yeah, that's not, like, that's not in the cards for me. That's not where my strengths and skill sets lie. And my ambitions changed. They were still big, they were still grand, but they were much more aligned with facts about myself that I couldn't have known at that early stage. And so I think the way to do it is set bold goals, go out there, do it, but be open to revision. If you're getting feedback from other people that you respect and reality, at least have it as a possibility that, okay, maybe I need to reconceive and reconsider how I'm thinking about it. The last thing I'll say is uh, Gina Gorlin wrote a really good article on this on her Substack on exactly this question of like, how does an entrepreneur know when they're ambitious and everybody's just not seeing what they can see versus when they're fooling themselves. Um, and so definitely check that out. I think it's, it has the best answer to exactly that kind of question that I've ever heard. 
Well, thank you everybody. And I hope you have a wonderful conference. Thank you for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.